We're going to win freaks. We're going to win situations. Volatile, hairy, a bit scary, but we're going to win. We're going to get the industry. Excuse me. We're going to get the energy industry to speculative attack the dollar. What, Uncle Marty? What? Just listen. Listen till the end of the episode. I just recorded with Luke Roman. Extremely insightful, extremely prescient. Uh, Luke is, he's been talking about the situations or the, the monetary situation that we find ourselves in for, for quite some time. And it seems like the things are happening. Things are happening. Seems like it might be uh, advantageous to produce stuff and not just dollars moving forward if you are the U.S. But alas, we just had a whole conversation about it. I'll let you go listen to that. I'm not going to re-explain it for you here. This room is brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. They're right down the hall from me here at TFTC Studios at the Bitcoin Commons in Austin, Texas. They're building incredible financial products for Bitcoiners with security in mind. They have their Vault product, which is two or three multi-sig quorum, a collaborative custody model where you hold two keys. Unchained holds one key. You always have complete control of your Bitcoin if you have your two keys. If you're ever in a pinch, Unchained is there to be the second in the two or three multi-sig quorum uh, to, to make sure that you can move your Bitcoin. They've open sourced that Vault product solution via Caravan. They're contributing to Bitcoin open source community and projects. They've got a R IRA, not IRA, RIA. IRA? IRA. It's IRA. They've got an IRA product as well. You can roll over your, uh, your IRA into Bitcoin and do it in a way where you actually control the keys of, of your Bitcoin that you hold in your IRA, which is very important. Uh, they've got their lending platform, which allows you to use Bitcoin as collateral to get US dollar same day liquidity. And they're building out more more products every day. They just did a, a massive overhaul too. Yeah, they had some scheduled maintenance earlier earlier this week. Um, and I think it's because they're upgrading some things uh, to, to their products as well and making them stronger. They have a white glove concierge service. It'll take you from zero to having a multi-state collaborative custody vault set up. You tell them the TFTC sent you, you're going to get $50 off that package. That package includes multiple video conference calls. Uh, they're going to send you hardware wallets and then they're going to dump a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats into your bolt once you have it set up. Go check everything they have going on at unchained.com. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at Brains. Brains. There's a team behind Slush Pool, which is the, the, the first ever and oldest. Therefore, since it was the first and it's still around, it is the oldest mining pool in Bitcoin's history. Uh, they're a team behind Brains OS Plus firmware, which allows you to stack more sats with your hash. You download the firmware on your ASIC if your ASIC is compatible, and it uh, it goes to the chips and finds the higher frequency chips on the hash board and focuses on them. It allows you to be more efficient, produce more hashes, and therefore produce more sats at the end of the day. If you have an ASIC that is compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not using it, you're using you're keeping you're keeping sats on the table, you're, you're missing out on potential sats flow, which you don't want to do. You want to increase your sats flow. So download Brains OS Plus 
firmware if you have an ASIC that is compatible with it. And they have insights.brains.com. That's brains with two I's, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. Insights.brains.com is your one-stop shop for all the data that you need in the mining industry. Hash rate, pool breakdown, hash value. We're calling it hash price, but we're trying to meme hash value over hash price. Um, and what is the value per terahash produced? Um, what else do they have? Their conference is canceled. They have principles. The EU put like a vax mandate on for people traveling in and out of EU countries and the brains team did not feel comfortable uh, coercing the, the participants and the people traveling to their, their planned conference that was supposed to be in June of this year. So they shut it down. Very, very principled. Go check out everything they have going on at brains, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. This trip is also brought to you by our good friends at HODL, 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 HODL is here to bring you a peer-to-peer lending platform with no KYC, no AML. You use your Bitcoin as collateral to get stablecoin liquidity. You put your Bitcoin up in a two or three multi-sig escrow account. You hold one key, your counterparty in the trade holds another key, and HODL, HODL holds a third key. You don't have control of your Bitcoin in this setup, however, you do have visibility into the wallet, so you can ensure that your sats are not being rehypothecated. And as long as you're paying back your loan, plus the interest associated with it, you're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. Alternatively, if you are a stablecoin person looking for liquidity, you put enter the other side of that that uh, that marketplace. Put your stablecoins up to be lent out, plus interest. Um, and so you, you get yield on your stable coins. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com. That's L-E-N-D dot H-O-D-L, H-O-D-L dot com to check this out again. No KYC, no AML. They're not going to snoop on your data. It's a pretty beautiful thing. This room is also brought to you by good friends at the Bitcoin 2022 conference coming up less than a month. We're weeks away uh, from the conference in Miami between April 6th and 9th. The 6th is industry day. You're a big player. Big player. You're going to want to be at Industry Day, days two and three. Our general conference days, there's going to be many stages with very focused talks. They have their open source stage, the minor stage, the main stage. They're going to have CEOs from all across the industry flying in from all over the world. They have President Bukele giving a big announcement during the conference. Day four is a music festival. Uh, you get Steve Aoki, Run the Jewels, Logic. Uh, Ty Kawamoto is going to get up and, and do a set. He's going to sing a cappella in front of everybody. It's going to be a beautiful thing to close out the conference. Uh, happening in Miami, 6th and 9th. Get your tickets while you still can as we get closer to conference day. Those, those prices are going to rise. Uh, it's going to be a beautiful, beautiful conference in Miami. Okay, go to b.tc b.tc slash conference. Use the code TFTC. If you haven't gotten your tickets yet, you're going to get 10% off. That's code TFTC. b.tc slash conference. Code TFTC. Last but not least, our friends at Fountain, our favorite uh, our favorite podcasting 2.0 app. I use it every day. I was listening to No Agenda on Fountain today. Uh, it was a a very good experience. It's just nice to know that you load your your fountain wallet up with sats and you're just streaming value to your favorite podcaster via Podcasting 2.0. Thank you to all your freaks out there who stream us sats via Podcasting 2.0. We really value your contributions to the value for value model. We like to think we're bringing you value 
via this podcast. So you guys sending us value back is just reinforcing. Uh, it's, it's very encouraging for us to know that, that some people are getting value out of this content that we're putting out here. Currently, Fountain is running a, a, a giveaway. Essentially, every new user that uh, is playing a TFTC podcast on this this RSS feed uh, f- throughout the rest of the month, so the next two weeks, is going to receive a thousand sats. So, if you want to receive a thousand sats, you go, you download the the Fountain app, and you listen to TFTC, any episode, and they're going to send you a thousand sats within twenty four hours. You'll also be able to reward. Uh, this is them talking to me. I'm not supposed to be reading this part. I will be able to reward <laughs> a individual freak out there. Uh, a bonus prize of 50,000 sats, which will be announced and paid at the end of the month. Um, so yeah, we're going to do this. If you haven't downloaded the Fountain app yet, go download it. You're going to get 1,000 sats. It's between today, March 14th, and the end of the month, uh, March 31st. So we've got uh, 17 days, less than 17 days since we're, uh, we're we're in the late afternoon here on March 14th. But go download the Fountain app. You can find it in in the popular app stores, listen to a TFTC episode. You're probably listening to this on some other podcasting app right now. If it's if it's Spotify, Apple, what are you doing? You could be listening on Fountain and, and getting sats for doing so. Go download the Fountain app, get your sats, and then at the end of the month, we'll pick a, a bonus winner who's going to get 50,000 sats. Will it be you? We'll see. We'll see. I can only pick one of you freaks who downloads the Fountain app. So go download it and enjoy this rip with Luke Roman. Love all y'all. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. How bad are things, Luke? <laughs> well, it's uh, you know what's 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 normal for the spiders, chaos for the fly. So for me, it's. I try to not see it as good or bad and just see it as I want to be a spider, not a fly. And, and, and more importantly, I want my clients to be spiders and not flies. Yes, it is what it is. And what we're talking about is what you describe as a hundred year global sovereign debt bubble beginning to pop. What in your mind was the, the pin that, that has uh, the particular moment over the last few weeks or uh, months, years, whatever it may be that is inciting this this bubble from popping excuse me i i think really it's um i think when we look back it will be uh seen it covid was really i think the bubble that pricked it and and um ultimately you know the ensuing two years were 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 trying to we're spent trying to per- pretend or paper over or flail against it. Uh, you can see the steps taken by sovereigns to effectively um, try to inflate their way out of it um, in terms of the, the fiscal spending uh, and, and central bank monetized fiscal spending effectively. Um, and, and the hope was that they could inflate their way out of it. And the challenge, of course, was that 
if they would have run what they did March of 2020 through uh, June of 2021 with the massive stimulus, 8% inflation rates, uh, 12% nominal GDP growth, if they had run that playbook in 08, um, in the aftermath of the great financial crisis, it would have worked. Uh, we would have inflated the debt, enough of the debt away, debt to GDP would have fallen precipitously instead of risen. And uh, Fed could have then normalized policy. We sort of, it would have been a reset in its own right, but we didn't do any of those things uh, in any real way. Uh, we didn't get the inflation we needed. And then when COVID hit, uh, we tried to run a version of that playbook. And the challenge is that ultimately uh, the inflation became a political issue. And so uh, because the inflation became a political issue, um, uh they're, they're they're sort of out of they're sort of out of uh out of room uh and so i think ultimately that will be seen as the uh as as the pin that that i think pricked the, the global sovereign debt bubble uh but i think this last two three weeks is is really i don't know it, it's a, it's a forcing function or a catalyst for i think really rapid changes I think that ultimately get us set to um, to move much more quickly, right? Because you can tr you can try to boil the frog and inflate the debt away, uh, and they tried to do that after COVID for a year, year and a half, and it became a political problem. And uh, now I think uh, we may see much more rapid changes uh, take place as a result of the last several weeks. Yeah. Hey, with COVID specifically, right? Like you had the combination of the money printing and then shutting down the global supply chains and in the last few weeks confiscating uh, reserves held outside of, of Russia. And even before that, Canada freezing people's bank accounts. I think the world is becoming very aware of two things. Number one, supply chains are very important. And number two, uh, control of your money is not what you thought it was only a couple months ago. And, and that is going to have profound effects moving forward. And so in regards to supply chains, I, th I saw you tweeting about this too. What we're seeing is a number of countries begin to ban exports because they're realizing that they're not going to have the essential commodities needed to, to feed their populace. We're talking about um, grains here specifically. Yeah, I think that that's um, really where here in... in I, th I think amongst, uh, I'm going to try to be diplomatic here, at least somewhat diplomatic. I have a tendency to not always, but I think amongst policymakers that came of age in the United States and in the West more broadly over the past 30 years, really, since the Berlin Wall came down effectively, uh, these policymakers, um, that are now in senior seats around Western governments um, and Western social democracies came of age at a time when the U.S. was a unipolar power and when they had never experienced anything in their lives um, that, uh, at least as adults, uh, that where they saw a separation of the value of fiat currency and actual underlying physical commodities, right? So I would say the gas lines of the 70s, uh, you know, if you were, you know, if you were 30 in 1990, yeah, you probably were, you know, you maybe experienced it a little bit, I guess, but you sort of, um, it wasn't, 
this, you know, this formative wasn't as, as formative as, or, or maybe they didn't take the right lesson from it. Right. I mean, they were operating under this view that was popular in 1990, that night, you know, 1990 was the end of history, right. The, the, the Francis Fukuyama book after the USSR came down. And so where I'm going with this is that we've seen a series of policies implemented uh, most recently in the last three weeks, but really uh, you could date this back to when we sanctioned uh, Iran using the SWIFT system, where they've only looked at it from one side of the coin, which is we have the dollar and so we can weaponize this. And they not looking at it from the other side of this, which is every time you do that and every time you do it bigger and every time you do it more, you're basically, I mean, people will start to think of the currency in their pocket as a grenade that can go off at any time if they do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, uh, et cetera. And, and so I, I think there has been just this view that dollar equals oil, dollar equals grains, dollar equals whatever. And, and we have the dollar, so we have all this stuff. And, and I do think there is some strategic thinking that, okay, we have enough that we can produce here um, in terms of the raw commodities. But this, we, we have spent 30 years optimizing our supply chains for efficiency instead of resiliency. And then you start messing with them. There's so little thought being given to second and third order derivatives that I just, I find myself astonished, quite frankly. No, it really is astonishing. <laughs> it's, I mean, you talk about the West, we can talk about energy policy here in the U.S. I think Germany is the shining example of the, the, the problems that come with ill-informed energy policy, decommission your reliable electricity generation sources for unreliable sources, and then you shift all the leverage to Russia as providing you with natural gas that runs your economy. Here in the United States, it seems like our... Uh, our leaders are are keen on taking us down a similar path in regards to not allowing us to to drill for as much oil and gas as as we're going to need moving forward. And it it again it is this hubris that that stems from this temporal anomaly of of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency, right? And it's 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 look going at, looking at the world right now, particularly the in the world of energy and food and seeing Russia, Ukraine and get into the situation that they're in. And now Russia's like, all right, you're on our shit list. We're not going to, we're not going to send you uh, these natural commodities. And I think that's one of the big memes that's been going around the last few weeks. Everybody's like, Oh, who cares? Russia's only 2% of global GDP, but they don't really understand how important they are in the commodities world. And, th and this is something that's become extremely astonishing to me is just how little, People understand that at the end of the day, yes, the dollar is has been the reserve currency, but you're going to want the hard assets when when push comes to shove and shit hits the fan. Yeah, it's a fundamental misconception that's just been brewed by, like you said, this dollar reserve currency since you know, you know, if you were if you were if you were 30 in 1990, you know, you were nine, you were 10 when Nixon went off the gold standard. You don't you don't remember anything, certainly not as a professional in the way the world worked, right? So. It's always been this system. It's always worked for you. But to your point, Russia is only 2% of global GDP. However, that's the price of Russia's GDP. The value of Russia's GDP is 10 million barrels a day of energy, 25,000 man hours per barrel. 
on estimate, right? So if you say a man hour is worth 20 bucks, that's the value of a barrel of oil to the economy is $500,000 times 10 million barrels. There's the real value of Russia to the global economy. You're going to take that out, then we can add natural gas onto that, then we can add grains onto that, we can add nickel onto that, we can add palladium onto that. And you quickly realize that what they have done is remove it too big a piece. You, you, they, there's no, and I think ultimately this was Putin's gambit, particularly with uh, with Chinese backing, is that look, could we remove Russia from the global economy? Um, yes, but not without a severe recession. Well, if we had very low debt, like we did in say 1979, and I'm not talking about private debt because private debt can always go bankrupt. Whatever it, it does, you know, get rid of it like we saw in the recession of, of 79-80, right? We, we, we were put into a recession to fight inflation. Or the Volcker put the economy into, into a recession to fight inflation. The issue is sovereign debt. The U.S. has sovereign debt that is so high, we cannot afford a recession without the solvency, the nominal solvency. And by that, I mean the U.S. will not have enough tax receipts to pay both its treasury spending and its entitlement obligations, let alone defense, and then everything else the government does without the Fed printing the difference. And so we have long said another fundamental, uh, uh, another fundamental uh, misapprehension of sort of the way the world works is, is been policymakers in power today, in the West especially, say, well, debt doesn't matter. Uh, sovereign debt doesn't matter. And they're right for very long stretches of time. They're 100% right. And then in brief stretches of time, they're all that matter. It's all that matters. And, and those brief stretches of time tend to be around national emergencies when you could really use uh, the fiscal capacity. Because if we had you know, 10% debt to GDP, 25% debt to, debt to GDP, like it was when Volcker took rates to 15%, look, we could cut Russia out. We could jack rates up to 10 15% to choke off the inflation. Yeah, we would go through a nasty recession. Yeah, unemployment would go up. Yeah, rates would go up. But then we could do the fiscal stimulus then to sort of help people out to get through it, it and, and you could make it all work. Now, with debt to GDP at 130%, you, you take rates up 200 basis points, and the whole thing's going to come unhinged. I mean, look, look at what we're watching now. We haven't even raised rates yet. Um, so I think that's really another sort of fundamental misapprehension is, is just where we are in the long debt cycle, particularly as it relates to... Um, you know, particularly as it rate relates to the sovereign debt side of the United States, but as the reserve currency issuer, but the West more broadly as well. Mm -hmm. Now, it seems like other players on the world stage are beginning to realize like, all right, maybe the dollar is not going to be what it has been. And you see these, these partnerships budding. Obviously, you have Russia and China. Uh, you had the UAE, NEG, Biden, when he reached out to them. You have Saudi Arabia. In China, partnering up now, and you have these power players, particularly in the oil markets, that are. It seems like they're posturing, like they're going to begin hedging away from the U.S. dollar. Like, what does this mean for the the global monetary order moving forward? As as all these power players start shifting away from the U.S., as it seems to be happening. You know, I think it's all out of self interest. Uh, whether that self-interest is enlightened or, or raw self-interest. But I think ultimately, 
if a nation doesn't have enough energy, then it is going to suffer an economic and humanitarian and political catastrophe. And everything flows from that. And I would use energy broadly defined as not just energy, traditional oil and gas, nuclear, but I, uh, electric, uh, coal. But I would also say um, things that are related to uh, you know, humans, right? Food, water. If you don't have enough of those things, you're in, you're in trouble. Uh, and so there is a recognition, I think, amongst all these sovereigns at, at the senior levels that there is a fundamental mismatch between um, the current and likely future price of energy based on both policy and geology, uh, peak cheap oil, as we've talked about, where these reserves are getting more and more uh, expensive to, 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 to find and replace as you use. And at the same time, you have a debt-based currency system where uh, that is that is fundamentally based on a ever-growing supply of cheap energy, um, and the debt backing the system's down to zero percent in terms of the rates. Right, so you're at zero percent basically everywhere or close to it. And so I think they're just fundamentally looking at this, going, "All right, if it's going to get more and more expensive to produce energy from here." In the meantime, that means tells me that debt is going to be increasingly a negative real rate instrument, uh, and so this old way of doing things has has to end, has to break. I need to make alternative arrangements. It is no longer a good idea for me to just stockpile dollars for my future energy needs because that's going to be an ice cube that just melts and melts, uh, and it's going to buy me less and less energy by definition um, because of peak cheap energy. And so I think what you're watching is, is, is the rest of the world facing this reality of like, look, we, we need energy. Uh, you know, we don't need dollars. We need energy. We don't need dollars. We need food. Um, we don't need energy or dollars. We need water. And that then has significant implications throughout the financial system. That's not to say people don't need any dollars, but if you used to stockpile $100, um, now you'll stockpile $50 and you'll take the other 50 and you'll go buy, you know, an oil field or a copper mine or, you know, et cetera. Yeah. That description reminds me of stories I've heard and people have been on the show in the past, but on a more micro level, like going through hyperinflation, Argentina, they get paid and then run to the grocery store and buy goods as quickly as possible before the, uh, the peso would devalue. So you're saying this is happening somewhat on the global scale. It has been for 10 to 12 years. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just being marked to market rapidly. I mean, it's been, it's been, I mean, you can go back in time, you know, there's a um, article on Reuters from 2013, uh, how China quietly took control of an OPEC nation's oil. And it's about Ecuador. And it showed that, that basically China had wrapped up uh, like 80% of Ecuador's oil production for the foreseeable future by lending them money, building infrastructure. And instead of taking payment in currency, they were effectively taking payment in barrels of oil. Uh, and you saw this playbook run over and over and over. Um, you know, there was a gigantic, um, well, gigantic is probably too strong word, but it was a sizable oil refinery. Uh, it was a joint venture that was being planned at one point uh, between the, uh, the Chinese and the Saudis back in, in 2014. And it was like, wake up. <laughs> One petroleum engineer was talking about, wake up. 
why, why do you think they're doing that? They're going to have, you know, these contracts are going to have right of first refusal. So the oils, they will be a partner in it. And then China will have right of first refusal to take the products, uh, you know, the, the refined oil and products if they want it. If not, they'll turn around and sell it. And so this has been going on. China's been doing this for at least 10 to 15 years. This, hey, we don't want the dollar. We want the stuff. And I think they were simply looking out 10 to 15 years uh, at the mathematical certainty that basically unless 70 million baby boomers in the U.S. went away uh, in a big hurry, uh, in other words, died, uh, then the U.S. was going to have to print tens of trillions of dollars. And as they did, China's energy and commodity bill was going to inflate um, and it would create a balance of payments problem for China. And so ultimately... China just cut the dollar out. They just said, all right, fine. You know, we, we have this pile of dollars that we've earned from trade with the United States. And, and prior to 2008, almost all of it went, you know, a lot of it went into treasuries and, and mortgage backs uh, and other financial assets. And increasingly after the great financial crisis, you, you, you see it began being diverted into production of real assets um, uh, around the world, ports, um, oil fields, farmland, uh, copper mines, gold mines. I mean, you just, you Google China buys and just look at all the stuff they've been buying for 10 or 15 years. And so China's been doing this for a while. Russia's been swapping out treasuries for gold uh, in particular for nine years now, uh, even before the original Ukraine situation uh, uh, in 2014. Um, So you can see some of these nations doing this. I think it's one of these things where now, I mean, when I would bring this up five years ago, I was the crazy guy in Cleveland, you know, <laughs> oh, that's, you know, you know, King dollar, you know, hashtag America. What are you talking about now after COVID where it was, you know, uh, Hey, we need some masks. Okay. Who makes them China? Hey, China, can we have some masks? Wait, after we get them, then you can get them. And I think that was finally where, um, a quorum of people that up until that point said, hey, the dollar is nothing but an exorbitant privilege for us, started saying, wait a second here. This is a bit, this is a two-edged sword, right? This is an exorbitant privilege, but it's becoming an exorbitant burden too, echoing what the Defense Department's been saying for 10 or 15 years, which is, listen, you know, we're borrowing money from China to build weapons to face down China, and we need to buy the stuff from China. Something's got to give here. So there's, um, I, I think, you know, we're watching this in real time, this, this, uh, a marking to market in the Western mind, if you will, of, oh gosh, uh, you know, look what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, Triffin warned us <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's happening it's, and yeah, none of these things. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it, again, it's, it's because we run our country on, you know, a two-year political cycle. And quite frankly, that's become long-term for us, right? We've gone from running it on a two-year political cycle to running our country on, you know, what sort of the, you know, the virtue signaling crowd is offended about this month. Yeah. And that's, that's been weaponized against us, right? We, we can see that. Oh, nuclear is bad. Get rid of nuclear. I mean, right. When you're, when you're have, when you have your energy policy being seriously influenced by 16 year old girls and rock musicians, and don't get me wrong, I love Bono's music. I don't think he should be advising energy policy. It's probably not a good idea. No. I mean, that's where I start to get frustrated and angry even because it's like, what are we doing sitting? I'm 30. I've got a son. 
I've got another child on the way. I'm looking forward to their lives and looking at what's going on in Washington. And it's just like, you just want to shake people. The way the Biden administration has come out and blamed all the inflation we're seeing on Ukraine, certainly going to contribute to it, but to try to, to pawn it off as, as solely a product of what's going on between Russia and Ukraine now and completely neglecting the, the multi-year buildup of, of inflation post, post-COVID is 1984-esque. And then on top of that, you have them doubling down on this asinine energy policy. <laughs> and they're trying to demonize what the industry that, that we're, that we're going to desperately need to get us back on the right track. And that's like, I think here in the United States, me personally, I would love to see grown up adults, strong men stand up and say enough is enough. We're not going to listen to the 16 year olds. We're not going to listen to Bono. We, we are in a, a pretty precarious situation and we need to just begin acting seriously. Uh, not even on the global stage. We just need to look inward. Like everybody huddle up. Like we need a new game plan. Yeah. And I, I think there eventually will be, and, and there are, there are very serious, very smart people sort of behind the scenes. Um, and the disconnect is ultimately, I think some of these people will go run this up the flagpole uh, to the, the, the face of the government and, the face of the government, I think, are um, very beholden to the, you know, what's popular, what's, what are we offended about this month in terms of the polling. And in the short run, we're seeing the outcomes of that. And I think, but in the long run, I think this is going to spur a crisis that will so badly burn the politicians that have been listening to the virtue signaling crowd of, of what are we going to do that? What, what are the polls telling me this month that they're going to be forced to turn around and say, okay, this, none of this has worked. Who do I talk to that actually knows what they're talking about? And, you know, those presentations, but here's what we're Here's what we need to do. And so I think, you know, it's, it, it all goes back to the, in my mind, to the, 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 the famous, if, if apocryphal Winston Churchill quote that the Americans always do the right thing after they've exhausted all the alternatives. And so mm-hmm. we are, I think in the last two, three weeks, I think this marking to market of what's been happening all along, uh, I think is getting us much closer to the crisis where we're not going to have any alternatives. And, and I think the crisis will be worse in some places than others. Uh, around the globe, um, but it, it's um, it, it has a chance of being pretty pretty nasty. Uh, unfortunately, that's just what I was going to ask. What does this crisis look like in your mind if it does unfold? So, in two thousand eight, um, Hank Paulson reportedly got down on his knees and begged Nancy Pelosi for the bailout. If you remember that, right? There will be no cash in the ATMs by Wednesday. No cash in the ATMs, no cash, tanks in the streets. He was worried about credit markets breaking down and then supply chains breaking down after credit markets. Much of Wall Street is sitting there looking at credit markets going, okay, a little bit of strain, but not too bad yet. But the, but the supply chains were broken starting before this thing. You know, they were, they were, they were the, but it was the, you know, hey, the China stuff was broken, right? The, the, but there was not really 
prob there there were problems with the food uh supply chains, but there were not problems with a capital P with the food supply chain. And now there is. And so I think we're seeing the crisis work in reverse, where this is not anything like the last 40 years anybody's ever seen. And so they're not thinking about it properly, which is you've broken the supply chains first. You're going to have a credit crisis because the supply chains broke first. It's not going to be, we have a credit crisis, we have to stop and paper over before it spills into supply chains. It's going to work the other way. And so I think actually you're seeing nations that are, are saying we're stopping exports of, of, of grains. These are the people that don't have any margin for error. I am, I'm going to get thrown out of office, and that's the happy ending. In some places, I will get you know killed, literally, if there are food riots, et cetera, in my country. We're done here. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, we're not exporting as much. Either they slow exports or they put export taxes on it. They do something to restrain the outflows of grains. And so everybody starts doing this. These are people that, 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 that are, are acting with a large margin of, of error, right? They, just, they don't need to day trade and get every last point out of corn. They just, boom, we need to make sure we have it. And so I think this is the leading indicator of this crisis where um, as the recognition in credit markets dawns, it, 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 you're going to have inflation continue to rise. And as you have confl- inflation continue to rise, the supply chains break down. You're going to have this reinforcing mechanism of my fiat currency doesn't buy me what I thought. My fiat inflation, you know, bonds, sell my bonds. I need to. And once that takes place, and I think it's starting to, um, central banks are going to have to, they're, they're going to have to either stands aside and let this credit crisis um, evolve. And what's going to be really unique about this, in my view, is that it's, in the West, it's going to look a lot like an emerging market credit crisis where yields go up, even as stocks go down, asset prices go down, unless um, the central banks come in and cap yields uh, and say, listen, all right, fine, 10-year treasury in the U.S. isn't going over two and a half, or isn't going over three, or whatever. They will, you know, we're doing QE, we're going to do some sort of yield curve control, and there's already calls out there. Started it started last week for some sort of treasury liquidity facility from the Fed. It's not QE. It's a treasury liquidity facility. Same thing, um, because the treasury market, the deepest, most liquid market in the world, not trading like the deepest, most liquid market in the world. Um, you're already seeing these strains again, similar to what we saw in March of 2020, when the treasury market, after 12 days of an equity downturn, crashed alongside stocks which had never happened in 40 years. It was a huge, huge warning signal. It's flashing yellow again. And so I think what we're looking at is ultimately this crisis spreading from supply chains into credit markets. And then from there, the, 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 the central banks, the Fed are going to be forced to increase liquidity, increase balance sheets into an inflation spike. And that I think is going to be sort of the crisis that forces these politicians. The first, I think, you know, midterms here, I think are going to, I think the Democrats are going to all get thrown out. Anyone that can get thrown out of office, I think is going to get thrown out of office uh, at this midterms. And then you're going to bring in a new group of people and will they get the message of like, hey, inflation's going crazy. What do we do? And Fed's going to go, look, I, treasury market's not functioning. We have to keep doing this unless you want rates to go up. In which case, okay, it has to come from policy. What's the policy that's going to fix this? 
all right, somebody call the energy guys. What do we got to do to get gasoline back down from seven bucks? Um, oh, we need to drill more. Okay, let's do that. Right. I mean, you get the right group of people in there. They'll be, as a friend of mine says, they'll be they'll be drilling in you know Thomas Jefferson's nose on on Mount Rushmore. Right. <laughs> um, but until then, you know, until I mean, it's just the way our political system works. Until there's enough political pain uh, to elicit a response, um, here we are. Yeah. Now I saw a troubling video over the weekend that is an anecdotal data point that, that proves that the supply chain crisis is going to lead to the credit crisis and, and a signal of the cascading doom loop that, that may be underway right now is a gentleman crying because um, he didn't eat that day. And he said he didn't eat because he couldn't afford gas to get to work, to get cash to then buy food. So like, you, you have the breakdown where people, like gas specifically is, we live in a an economy here in the United States where most people need to drive to their job and people literally can't afford to drive to the place where they make money. And that's when things get scary. Like I went today setting up this studio, picking up this furniture. Like and I had been at this furniture store three or four times over the last week. And out of those three to four times, the most people I saw working there were two people this morning. There was one person working there. Like it's, it's really eerie right now what's going on, just observing um, in, in different areas of the economy. Well, yeah, and we, you know, I mean, we had some, uh, we ordered some new, well, we didn't order any new furniture. We went, we had, we needed to get some new furniture last fall. And we walk in and they said, all right, first off, you know, most of this stuff, it's going to take you at least six months to get if we ordered it today. Some of it will take up to a year. And so my wife, to her credit, she goes, listen, I don't want to. I don't want to look at any of that stuff. Take me to what you take me to the pieces that you have in the warehouse or the stuff we can buy here off the floor, and and that's what we did. And it was it was just what do you have? You know the the the, the couch in the hand is worth you know a year's worth of the couch on order, and that was before you know we started seeing some you know some new slowdowns out of China in terms of production. So it's. It, it's a very unique and, and potentially very scary crisis because, like I said, we have optimized our entire supply chain and economy for efficiency based on a on a misapprehension. We would never experience peak cheap energy. We would never get into uh, tensions with China. We would never, you know, Russia would forever be poor and weak. Um, all of these things that were extremely short-sighted because of our two-year election cycle uh, or our shorter virtue signaling. And now here we are, and um, there's there's sort of all the easy things have been done, all the easy, you know, let's optimize a little more. Let's, oh, we, you know. And so now there's there's nothing but hard choices left. There's There's no painless choices left. And so you just need to be prepared, I think, for... Um, like I said, I think this is a supply chain crisis that moves into for, exacerbates the inflation crisis, and then that's going to be the trigger for the popping of this. You know, for, to really make it obvious, this this first um, you know sovereign debt bubble in a hundred years. I think it's starting to get a little bit more obvious. But if slash when the central banks, the Fed, have to increase liquidity into an inflation spike, that's going to be the either aha or oh shit moment for a lot of investors uh, where. 
I think there's this belief that they can still run. Um, you know, they can still tighten to fight inflation. There is just the, 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 there is not enough, um, there is not enough appreciation or there's virtually no attention being paid to the U S sovereign balance sheet on wall street. They're just not looking at it because everybody knows it doesn't matter. Just like they knew the home prices could never fall nationally. And, you know, because they hadn't ever, except of course they had, it was just when they had the last time everybody was, everybody that experienced it was dead. Right. It happened in the thirties. So everybody that lived through the national, that last national home price drop in 2005 through eight was that they were, they, they had died already. Same thing where the last, you know, the U.S. balance sheet has mattered numerous times, um, numerous times. The United States effectively defaulted in 1971 and in 1933 on its obligations as they were as they were stated. Right. We owed we owed gold. They defaulted on domestic gold obligations in 1933 and they did. They defaulted on foreign gold obligations in 1971. And so there's these types of restructurings happen all the time. They'll never call it a default. But again, this moment, I think the aha moment, just like the, oh, God, Nixon just closed the gold window is going to be, oh, God, the Fed is the, the Fed is is loosening into an inflation spike. Why are they doing it? And the answer is because the debt they have to. They don't have a choice. It'll be, you know, you can either default nominally on treasuries or on your entitlements or the Fed has to print more. So what do you think this means for like gold, Bitcoin? Do you think we, the world wakes up and we get to transition away from these granularly controlled and micromanaged monetary systems that, that introduce a lot of moral hazard? Uh, and do you think the world sovereigns begin to give uh, Bitcoin and gold a chance? Do you think they're forced to? Um, like, do you think the world is is waking up to the view that okay, maybe maybe we should have more free market monetary systems that aren't as granularly controlled? I I think the world's need for energy, right, for a system that doesn't destroy their economies, is forcing that. I think I don't. I think they, they would rather not have a system that is most of them like the dollar system uh, until it began threatening them. And, and by threatening them, I mean this, you know, oil's only priced in dollars and the Americans print 70 trillion, 80 trillion, 100 trillion for entitlements over some span of time. And, and their energy bill inflates and they run out of dollars and then they have a currency crisis. And so that, I think, has been on everybody's mind since 2008. And so... Yeah, I think it's really good for neutral reserve assets, gold, Bitcoin. Uh, you've seen, obviously, what the Russians have done with gold. Um, it, it, gold's coming out of this crisis looking really, really good, um, You know, given uh, the freezing of FX reserves. I think, ultimately, Bitcoin is a neutral reserve asset for the people. I think it's coming out of this, this crisis looking good, too. I mean, I just saw something earlier today that... Um, European move to sort of try to ban it on on uh, the mining, the proof of work mining. mining. Yeah, the proof of work mining. I think um, yeah, that's a really good sign, um, and actually shows maybe the Europeans are learning something. <laughs> you know, the people, right? It was like, hey, let's get rid of all our nukes. Yay! Oh, hey, let's get rid of all the proof of work Bitcoin mining. Yeah, 
uh, right? So I, I, there is, to, that to me is encouraging, I think. So I think gold's coming out of the second world. I think Bitcoin is a, I, I think, a, a uh, neutral reserve asset for the people. Could it be in the game theory of every, how everything could play out if the United States adopted Bitcoin as a reserve asset or if other major nations did? Uh, I think it, it would be tremendously good for the system, tremendously good for the U.S., uh, there'd be vicious sector rotation within the U.S. I think away from finance and and uh, sort of dollar export, the dollar export bond export business that we've been in for the last 40, 50 years towards making things again. I think that wouldn't be very good for the dollar, but I think it would be uh, within the game theory could be very positive. Do I think that's about to happen? No. Is it being talked about uh, in small circles in the government? Yes. Um you know, with the, the the center, I think of the rational discussion around the monetary system. Ironically, is not taking place at the Fed. It's not taking place at the Treasury. It's not taking place on Wall Street. It's taking place at the Department of Defense, which actually makes perfect sense when you think about it. Because what's defense? What's what's war fighting? At the end of the day, war fighting is logistics. It's mm-hmm. supply chain logistics, and these guys are looking at their supply chains and logistics. Are going. This is a freaking disaster. We need to borrow money from China to build weapons using components from China to face China. Okay, how do we fix this? Why, why aren't we making anything? And they look back and they go, the dollar system. The dollar system, we, we literally incense us not to make things. We have to run deficits. Well, if we have to run deficits, we have to get rid of our manufacturing. Uh, and that's what's happened over the last 50 years. We, we produce dollars. Everybody else produces stuff. And so really, when you look at sort of the, 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 the center of rational thinking, I think, that's going on in Washington around this currency system changeover, it is paradoxically, ironically, not being done in Treasury, Fed, or Wall Street. It's being done, the most of it's being done uh, in, in the Defense Department, you know, maybe in some of the intelligence centers as well. Um, so we'll see how that develops. But I think, you know, what does it mean? I, for the time being, until we get de-escalation, I think you want to own gold. I think you want to own Bitcoin. I think you want to own dollars. And and I think commodities are going to do well. It's I think they're going to continue to be volatile. But there's just so um, there's so little visibility in terms of just seeing how this could go. And and there are ways it could go really really pear shaped. That I just think it's it's it pays to be cautious and and sort of own those you know those those. I think de-risk neutral reserve assets and and you know and and dollars, which you know it's something that's been a safe haven currency for a long time. Yeah, I got a couple of things I want to touch on. First, what is going on with the metals markets? We saw we saw LME nickel obviously went up to like a hundred grand last week. People were short squeezing at that Chinese tycoon, and then the LME came back and was like, actually, we're going to ignore all those trades between uh, fifty thousand and a hundred thousand dollars, and then. I heard rumors in the gold markets uh, between LME and COMEX. There was uh, COMEX. There was similar activity that could have potentially broken out. People were buying gold and silver uh, well over spot, and which seemed to be uh, a a worried rush to to cover some some short positions as well. What, what what's your view on the, the the plumbing of the precious metal markets specifically right now? So. I, I don't have any specific insight into the plumbing of them as they stand now. What I can tell you is when you get these types of, um, you know, crises, right? This uh, political crisis, geopolitical crisis that we've had, 
Um, you're going to get a lot of, of retail physical buying, right? So buying of, of bars and coins, and that's going to blow spreads out. Sometimes you'll see coin spreads really blow out. And sometimes that's a metal issue. More often, in my experience, that's been a either refiner or minting issue, uh, capacity issue. So I'm, I tend to be cautious about getting too worked up about seeing the, the premiums blow out um, there. Where... But bigger picture, I do think it's important that at the supranational level, at the giant level, right, of uh, physical metals, because the other thing I think it's important, too, gold has a stock-to-flow ratio of, I don't know, 60, right? And nickel probably has a stock-to-flow ratio of, I don't know, I'm going to guess, two, which means, like, you can chew through the inventory, and and if it's still being used in the economy, you're going to run out, and now there's this sort of real uh short squeeze dynamic same thing with oil right like when when oil inventories are really high you know the stock to flow ratio is probably 1.5 when they're really low they're probably 1.2 and so you get the 1.2 and oil price just starts going vertical and if they get the 1.6 it's going you know straight down gold stock to flow ratio at 60 and silver's at i don't know 30 whatever it is you know because silver does have uh, some industrial uses or certainly much more than gold gold has a little bit but a big stock to flow ratio can be interpreted as how far you can separate physical fundamentals for paper fundamentals before you start running into shortages. And so you can't do go for very long in things like food, oil, a little bit longer in things like nickel, palladium, things like that, where you're using them in industrial uses, just assuming normal economic activity. And so that's how you've been able to sort of, you know, you create all these paper gold derivatives and nobody ever actually wants the gold. And so you can sort of keep this whole game going. Um, in terms of the amount of paper claims out, broadly speaking, broadly defined, uh, on actual underlying physical gold to, uh, to a lesser extent silver. Where it starts to get sort of interesting is, is when you kick a Russia out of the system and you say the FX reserves are no good, now you are getting perilously close to forcing Russia to connect oil and gold. If they connect oil and gold, gold stock to flow ratio is effectively going to collapse down towards oil, right? So now you're going to be having, you know, uh, globally, there are $2 trillion a year in oil dollars, right? If it's just 100 million barrels a day times $100 times, uh, and actually it's a lot more than $2 trillion, actually. It's more like, uh, uh, geez, um, more like three, three and a half trillion uh, at 100 bucks. Anyway, um, and the gold market globally, in dollar terms, annual production is like 200 billion, right? So the, 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 the oil market some 15 to 20 times the size of the gold market. So it's not going to take a lot of oil. If you force the Russians to start settling in gold, they're not going to settle in paper gold because you just took their paper reserves. Mm-hmm. They're going to want physical. And that's where what happens starts to get interesting in terms of possibly causing a squeeze in things like gold and to a lesser extent silver with these big stock to flow ratios that have historically been squeeze proof, or if they start to get squeezed, you get, you know, somebody who decides they want to sell, you know, $3 billion of gold at, you know, 2.15 AM on a Sunday night in, in, you know, in New York, um, which is clearly a currency intervention by some central bank or, or collateral agent somewhere in the system. It's not a market-based agent. These types, if you connect, if you force the Russians to connect oil and gold, 
oil is so much bigger than gold. And so you can smash it down and all it's going to happen is just boop, right back up. And so it's, it is interesting to me. One thing I observed last week, a good buddy of mine pointed it out and I was, it, it surprised me is the CME increased margins on gold by 9%. Now, historically that is like the kiss of death for, for gold futures, right? It's like, okay, CME raises margins. Everybody's got to sort of true that up. And what do they do? They sell gold. And then you get someone come in and pound gold on top of that. Gold goes down 30, 50 points in a waterfall. And that sort of gets it back under a key technical level and away we go. And that's sort of how they manage it. And they did the 9% CME raise, knocks it down 15 points like that. And then just right back up to brand new highs. Right. And so I don't want to make too much of a single day, but we saw that several times last week down big, right? Like it usually is at eight 30 in the morning in New York and then just run it up. And so that's the type of action you would expect to see if you were going to start seeing gold used as a reserve asset for Russian oil, oil more broadly, commodities more broadly. There's a real commodity underpinning real economic activity with a much lower stock to flow ratio that is going to be basically bidding for that physical gold. And those markets are so much bigger than the physical markets that you could sell all the paper you want. All that's going to happen is they're just going to take it all and say, what else you got? What else you got? And so that you'd have to, you know, move back to defend a higher level in gold prices. Um, I'm not saying that is what's happening. What I'm saying is, is on a very small sample size and based on a market behaving very differently than it has with the CME, with this, you know, raising margins on gold, uh, than it has in the past, having watched gold for a decade plus, it might be happening. We'll see if that continues to develop and if things continue to not de-escalate in, 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 uh, uh, in Ukraine with Russia, et cetera. But I, I think, I don't know that we have that short squeeze there yet, but I think we have all the ingredients for that kind of a short squeeze in, in place, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, this is extremely interesting. Because, yeah, and like what is happening with the, de- is, are things de-escalating or in, in, in complete chaos? Like over the weekend, I think, Iran bombed the U.S. consulate in Iraq. Like it seems, like it does the current reaction by the United States and the West toward what's going on in Ukraine is that emboldening other "quote unquote" pariah states to to, to lash out as well. And then if that happens, what does that do to the the cascading feedback loop? And it is <laughs> insane that we have a mentally defective person as the president of the United States right now too, which is not to get personal, but it's just like mind blowing. Like how, how are we being led through this crisis by this gentleman and a vice president who can't do anything but laugh in in a very uh, awkward way. Anytime she's put in a situation where she actually has to answer situations uh, or answer questions about particular situations, it's mind blowing. Clown world. We live in a clown world. And uh, <laughs> I'm reminded uh, there was a, I wrote about this actually last week. There's a book called Wealth Worn Wisdom by uh, uh, Barton Biggs, who's a famous Wall Street strategist. And it talks about I think world it, I think it's all about World War II, but certainly part of it is. And the the point punchline is this: is that uh, the Japanese government was telling its people that it was beating the United States all the way through World War II. Uh, they finally admitted that they were losing to the United States. Uh, four days after the second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, when the emperor came on the radio 
the first time a lot of them had ever heard the emperor's voice and said, war is not going necessarily to our advantage and we're surrendering. But up until that point, we're winning, we're winning, we're winning, we're winning, we're winning. And so you had to pay attention to various narratives. And the point of, of, of Biggs's story is to say the Nomura family, which ended up being one of the wealthiest families in Japan and obviously a Nomura securities firm, they began this, they were connected at the time. You know, they were, they were wealthy, but not as wealthy as they eventually became. And, and part of what got them there is, is they paid attention, right? So they were connected. The official story was they beat us at Midway. They beat us at the Battle of Coral Sea. But they also knew the families whose sons were the captains of a number of the ships involved, and they never came home. They went to the funerals. Uh, a number of the captains had geishas, and they, 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 they never came home. Uh, they were paying attention to the bars being taken down in the Imperial parks or off the Imperial palace to be melted down for iron. Why are we doing that if we're winning? Right. So as there's, and I'm not saying one side or the other that this applies to U S Russia, Ukraine. I don't know. Um, I, I, to me, the most fascinating thing in trying to gauge this is the level of information warfare that we're getting objected to in real time to me has been um, absolutely uh, fascinating from both sides, from all sides. And I think, quite frankly, the West is, is, I think, hands down, killing Russia in the informational warfare game. Um, and so it's, it, I just don't know what to make of it, but I'm spending my time trying to find things that, that don't make sense, right? Things that really stick out, right? So- um, Bio labs. You know, <laughs> What's that? Bio labs. We're not worried. That, that, that one's, you know, even that one, I'm, I, I don't know, but like us going down to Venezuela to basically panhandle mm-hmm. Peroya. Like if shale can come right back real quickly, why? The, you know, the fact that we go to Iran and to Venezuela, two regimes we have been um, basically trying to tip over for 20 to 40 years. And we're down there, you know, what, you know, what does that tell us about the state of the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi? I think we're finding that out. But what does that say about the, the potential that – what if Saudi can't produce anymore, period? What if Matt Simmons 15 years ago in Twilight in the Desert was right, that Gawar was going to roll over at some point? It's 5 million barrels a day, and once it does, like, it's a huge deal. I don't know. Um, all these things. I, mean, like, I, I have more questions than I have answers, mm-hmm. but I think for me what I'm trying to do is just watch for – Watch for the really big things that ask really uncomfortable questions of the consensus, right? So why are things like, why are we panhandling for oil in Venezuela? Why are we so happy to give anti-tank missiles to the Ukrainians? Why will we not fly our planes over in that airspace? Like why, like these types of, and I don't, you know, basically look at it as like a child, right? I'm just saying these are things that don't make sense to me. We put a no-fly zone up in Serbia, 95. We put a no-fly zone up in Iraq in the late 90s and again in 2000. We put a no-fly, we put a number of no-fly zones up. We won't put it up over Ukraine. Why? I don't know the answer, but I don't think the, I'm not sure there are people that are willing to give that answer out for a reason. I think there's a reason mm-hmm. for it, is what I'm saying, right? And I'm not sure the, I'm not sure the reason jives with the consensus narrative right now, one way or another. Um, so, so we'll see. Um, I, I, I just, it is fascinating. It's fascinating time. No, I completely agree. And it's the product of the digital age of the information age. 
you know, sovereign individual predicted it pretty presciently. There's going to be so much noise, so much data to try to filter. It's, it's, it's going to be extremely hard to find the signal. And this Ukraine situation is a perfect example of information warfare. It's just frankly befuddling, uh, trying to figure out what is actually going on. But yeah, going hand in hand to Venezuela, Iran uh, is very, is very odd. And then again, back to like the bio labs, it's like, all right, you're you have Newland, um, basically in front of Marco Rubio, like we need to go protect these bio labs so that Russians don't get any bioweapons. And then they're like, we weren't working on any bioweapons there. It's like, what? Yeah, that, that doesn't make sense either. That doesn't jive. Um, Even Newland being like, hey, I want to, you know, eight years ago with her famous, you know, fuck the EU comment. I mean, um, you know, we've sort of forgotten all that. What did she mean by that? What was the, you know, you can hear the context and they're trying to get their guy in there. Um, that has all sort of been sort of, that doesn't get brought back up in any tightness. Yeah, right. So, okay, that's why don't we want to talk about the fact that this woman who is now testifying all this stuff said these things? What did she mean by these things? And again, these are things that these are why I would never get asked to any of these types of press conferences, right? Is this you're just you'd get to go to one of them and you'd ask a few questions and they would ignore you and then you would never get another invitation and you'd get your security badge revoked and that would be the end of it, right? So, you know, and and in a world of access journalism, you are useless to a mainstream news agency if you do that. So it it like I said, I don't have the answers. I have some questions, but there's, you just, you know, I, I, I suspect a lot of it has to do with energy pipeline politics, the dollar, um, relative power levels, leverage. Um, and I think we're seeing that, right? I think we're watching Putin use his energy weapon. Um, you know, uh, so I, I, I don't know what, I don't want to fully make of all of it. Yeah, neither do I. I just know I'm happy that I have some Bitcoin. Like <laughs> going back to the uh, department, Department of Defense being ones to like highlight, like, oh, it's it's a it's a U.S. dollar problem. We're not building anything. We should probably consider these alternatives. And the fact that the academic economists who run the Federal Reserve and, and the Treasury are driving completely blind because their heads are so far in the sand that I don't think they'd ever be able to admit to themselves that that. Bitcoin or reverting to a sound money standard uh, with a free mar market money um, is a good idea. They'll never admit it. So that's like that's the thing too. Like this is a golden opportunity if you're war gaming and there is the potential that Russia, China, and others are beginning to turn away from the dollar. Maybe potentially bring in their own. Uh, fiat currency regime that they want to control like what better move to make than to front run that like all right you're going to do that we're going to go to this distributed peer-to-peer -peer free market money that, that nobody can control like yeah we had our reign with the dollar it's over it's obvious but now we're not going to let you control the money we're going to go to this this apolitical monetary system that would be it would be a wise thing to do. It would be a smart thing to do. I think it would have to be spun as that we're doing it out of strength, not out of weakness or being forced by, but it would be a huge Trump card move, right? Because really China's got a power problem and China has a power problem because China has a water problem. And so if you move to a, what I would call a power, electric power linked currency or a reserve asset, not even currency, but reserve asset like Bitcoin, right? The proof of work. 
you got you got to do the work. You got to generate the electricity. Then all of a sudden, it's going to create a. Uh, um, it changes the terms of competition, um, and they've been very slanted away from us. It would slant it back to us, where it's suddenly okay. Who's got plentiful water, plentiful electricity? We do, and so that would give us sort of a jump start. Um, towards something new conceivably um to that sort of like you said a a a a free or freer market free market currency system right rather than um you know people say we're free market capitalism well as long as you have a monopoly on the pricing of commodities uh as the dollars had that's not a free market system that's basically a company store right it's like you know you have to use the dollar for you know you have to use the dollar for this then that that's sort of a company store and it's it's had winners and losers. And the problem is, is now the losers uh, have gone from, you know, working class, middle class. Now it's Washington Defense Department. The, the, the exorbitant privilege has become exorbitant burden. And so we need to change to something. So it would be it would be a huge, in my view, you know, um, it'd be a real trump card to play. I don't think I don't think we're that close to it yet, but it, it would be within the game theory, a, a big move. Hey, let's be bold, America. I know we're worried about uh, teaching our kids to hate themselves and all that shit, but let's let's focus. Let's pull the Trump card out. Let's win. The, I mean, I've seen it down here in Texas. The oil and gas industry is is getting very much into Bitcoin. Like we have the capacity, the intellect, and the ability to to win and win bigly in terms of uh, turning towards Bitcoin. I mean, like. People are ready to go too. That's like the frustrating thing. It's like you have very integral players in the in the energy industry who are starting to get it, and they're like, "Yeah, let's let's sprint towards this." And maybe, maybe that's how it happens. Maybe you don't even need the politicians to actually step in and be like, "All right, we're going to go this way." You have it might be. You have energy companies saying like, "No, like this is good for our business. This is good uh, for uh, our our operations." Like, if you take this away from us, you're already coming hat in hand. Uh, well, you're going hat in hand to Iran and Venezuela. You should be coming hat in hand to us here in the Permian and in the Bakken. Um, but like we're we're going to do this because it, it makes sense for us. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. And then, does the energy industry have enough leverage over the political class to actually pull it off? That's the question looming. If the energy industry gets enough money, it it'll have enough leverage over the political class, right? And that's where it gets interesting. Is if the energy industry got together and just started saying, all right, we're going to keep just enough cash in our coffers to maintain our liquidity and our debt ratings, et cetera. And then we're not only going to use flaring and, and you pair up with Bitcoin, you know, to uh, smooth out our operations from a, from flaring and, 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 but then we're also going to warehouse in our treasuries. And we're just going to squeeze it higher and higher and higher. And we're going to make our balance sheets get so big that we'll then conceivably with what we're producing in energy, um, you could force your way right into that. You could, you, <laughs> you get yeah. a balance sheet bigger than JP Morgan's, uh, you know, with, with, you know, then, and I haven't done the math. I'm, I'm being a bit hyperbolic here. Right. But you, in Washington, money's power money talks mm -hmm. right so you could conceivably do that 
if you got enough of the energy industry to sort of go along with that of not just pairing with Bitcoin in terms of the flaring, um, you know. But adding it to your balance sheet, manifest destiny. Like you can, you can do that. I'm, I'm a big believer. Energy for energy. Why would you, why would you do, you know, energy for bonds? You, uh, the energy industry knows how much higher cost the reserves are going to be, right? They've, they've already mined all the, or fracked all the, a lot of the A locations, right? So they're into B and C locations. And then after that, they're actually going to have to find new locations, right? So the cost, the marginal cost is going up. So why would you store reserves in your balance sheet in debt or fiat currency? You're better off leaving the oil in the ground and not drilling it. Unless you put a, an asset on your balance sheet that's going to rise with the cost of energy, like Bitcoin or gold. So unless you do those things, I mean, this is a, effectively what Putin's doing. He just has the ability to do it because he's a strong man and it's state owned and it's, you know, um, you know, he's he, he's buddy buddy with the with the guys that run the oil companies there. They're they're all his all his all his pals. And but it's the same concept is he's better off le- you know, he's better off leaving it in the ground than pumping it out and selling it to us for treasury bonds are gonna fall eight to ten percent a year against oil. Yeah. You know. It's nonsensical. Not? It's nonsensical, we- it makes no sense. Leave it in the ground. Leave it in the ground, call me when you're ready. You know, call you know, call me when you're ready to be serious. We can win. The only reason you need to. Yeah, the only reason you need to is you have debt, right? So if you're a highly indebted shale guy, but when, once the energy industry pays off his debt, you know, some, you know, the, 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 the low debted guys would be like Putin, right? He can do this because he has no debt. I mean, this is a balance sheet contest. At the end of the day, what he's doing is a balance sheet contest. My balance sheet is better than the balance sheet of the United States. And he's right. He's right. Yeah. He's calling our bluff. And that's he's the thing. Uh, and the, we, the, the U.S. energy industry could do the same. You know, well, the they, unlevered ones, the less levered ones. Yeah, and they could speculative attack. Well, even if you are an over-indebted energy player, you could speculative attack that debt by stacking Bitcoin. Like if the energy industry were to get together, like we're going to... Sell it, pay it off. Delever yourself. Yeah. I don't know why you wouldn't. Hey, execs in the oil industry, I hope you're listening to this because this is the way. (laughs) This is the way you save the country. You don't need the politicians. You can... That's the crazy, beautiful variable that that bitcoin brings to the mix you, you don't need to wait for these politicians to to finally get it and pull out the trump card you can have industry pull out the trump card by doing it it's just it's just will individual will at the at the corporate level yeah, do you do you have it i mean and, and the and the commodity industry is the perfect one to do it again because once you've covered your dollar financing costs right to float the debt why on god's green earth bonds have to be with the u.s sovereign in this position bonds have to be negative real rate for the wheels to not come off the cart in Washington. And so if you know that's going to be negative real rate debt and you know peak cheap energy means the cost of your reserves, the cost of your production is going to rise over time. It's insane. It's literally completely irrational to store your res- I mean, it, it makes sense to do one of two things, buy back your own stock or put gold or Bitcoin on your balance sheet or leave it in the ground. Yeah, That's it. You're not going to this Empower conference at the end of the month here in Houston, are you, by chance? I'm not, uh-uh. I think you should. I'm going to reach out. If I mean, March 30th and 31st in Houston. I think you need to get this message to that particular conference. It's being held by the Digital Wildcatters, and it's a, a meeting of the minds between the Bitcoin mining industry and 
the the oil and gas industry, energy industry in general, there'll be other players there as well. But I think this message needs to begin permeating throughout the energy sector. Like you guys can shift the leverage in your favor and help save this country in the process by by sort of forcing the issue, by just simply putting Bitcoin in your balance sheet, mining it, keeping keeping a, a portion of it and speculative attacking your debt and giving yourself more power at the end of the day. I think that imagine if we were able to do that like over the next five years i think it, 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 it's, it's it's interesting right it's possible too I mean, absolutely it, it is it, yeah if there as long as your balance sheets aren't too levered to start with right the only reason you need dollars is to pay the dollar debt mm-hmm. and so to the extent you're covering your coupon plenty of comfort and, you know keeping the ratings agencies happy and and all that stuff that's you know that's the real world practical stuff you have to look at if you're a cfo or a ceo but um beyond once you cover those I mean, it literally makes no sense to be putting your money into cash, T-bills, you know, above and, above and beyond liquidity needs if you're an energy producer. You should be stockpiling something that's going to hold its value in energy. We're going to clip that. We're going to clip the whole, the, whole, the whole end of this conversation because we're going to try and get it as far and wide as possible. Luke... I've taken up a lot of your time on this Monday. Uh, it's always a pleasure. We got to do this more often. It's it's actually, I love. Um, I mean, because the, the first time we chatted, it had to be like a year and a half, two years ago, probably almost now at this point. Um, it was like in the beginning of the pandemic, I believe. And uh, I think you were Bitcoin curious, but it seems now that you're you're you've done your research. I mean, I know we've talked off the record too about Bitcoin and energy. And I'm just very excited to see somebody of your caliber coming and um, bringing like very good pro Bitcoin arguments to to your audience. Thank you. So thank you for that. Thank you. Um, we're gonna win. We just can't depend on the politicians. I think that's what we just gotta get that out there. They're not. They're gonna move too slow. They're worried about primary or the two year election cycle. We need to get back to our roots as America and like industry capitalism leading the way let's not let's not we, we just look at what's going on we can't wait for these people to lead we need to lead ourselves maybe that's you can say like industry individuals have gotten complacent and become so cucked to the political class that that they just worry about everything they do affecting their ability to operate like just ignore them start stacking bitcoin get all the leverage and say, hey, if, if you want to be energy independent, if you want a thriving energy industry in, in the United States, you're going to need to allow us to mine Bitcoin and do what we want with our, with our reserves. I'm sorry for that, that ending right there. Okay. Luke, where, uh, where, can we, uh, where can we send the freaks? Is there any... any... <laughs> yeah, they can check out, check out our website, Luke, or excuse me, FFTT-LLC.com and uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. If you're not following Luke, you should be. I mean, I think I saw Nick Carter tweet out earlier this week. Uh, who, who's, who's the most vindicated analyst uh, in in the world? And you're uh, like, who are the top five? And you're in this top five. Like you've been preaching this stuff for for quite a while, and um, it, it it's it's all seems to be happening right now. So you've you've been uh. You've been preaching this and it's turning out to be true. So 
Um, Thank you. That's yeah, feel- we've, we've been more right than wrong, which is what you all, all you can hope for as an analyst. So it's, uh, you know, but uh, you just have to keep grinding because, you know, it's, it's a, it's a humbling business. So uh, you can't, you, you can't get too high. can't get too low. So we'll, we'll every, if everything evolves with time. So we'll see, but yeah, it's been, uh, um, you know, it's, it's been, it's been fun and it's been, I think, helpful for our clients, which makes me uh, very happy. Well, keep crushing it. Thanks, man. We'll do this again soon. That sounds great. Peace and love, freaks. Thank you.